Hi, I'm James Crichton, and this is Actors on Process. Today is Monday, August 17th, 2020, and my guest today is Andrea Burns. Andrea was seen most recently on Broadway in the Roundabout Theatre Company production of The Rose Tattoo, written by Tennessee Williams and directed by Trip Coleman. She played Pepina in that production and also stood by for Academy Award winner Marissa Tomei as Serafina. You may also know her as Daniela in the original Broadway company of In the Heights, Gloria Fajardo in the Gloria and Emilio Estefan musical On Your Feet, the originator of Woman One in Songs for a New World, Celeste in the New York City premiere of Stephen Sondheim's Saturday Night, as well as additional roles on Broadway in The Nance, The Ritz, The Full Monty, and Beauty and the Beast. This was one of the most fun times I've had recording an episode of this podcast. I had a feeling that Andrea and I would hit it off, and boy, am I thrilled to have been right. Before you listen to today's episode, you might want to head over to YouTube or scroll down wherever you listen to your podcasts to find this week's episode notes and click on the two links provided, which will bring you to two of my favorite episodes of Seth Rodetsky's Obsessed videos starring Andrea. We spend quite a bit of time unpacking some of the things that they talk about in those episodes, so you might find the videos both illuminating and hilarious before you enjoy today's episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow me on Instagram at Actors on Process, and leave me a review if you like what you hear. Without any further ado, here's Andrea Burns. holding it down and uh, I am a proud New Yorker and so I'm very proud of my city I'm proud that our numbers are down I'm proud that we've all come through what was such a tough time uh, in the spring and um, now it's just about you know resilience and creativity and trying to figure out how to be a theater making artist during this time until we can all get back in one room again and uh, won't that day be sweet? I cannot wait for that. Truly. But in the meantime, listen, necessity breeds invention, and here we are. We're doing a podcast. You know, we're, um, I'm doing a lot of teaching online. Um, yeah, it's been a really interesting time. And, of course, this summer has uh, opened up such a huge conversation about racial equality and social justice, and that's been incredibly educational to be a part of. So it's been a rich and full 2020, actually. Why don't you start from the beginning with us? Just briefly describe uh, who you were growing up in Miami and when and how did theater come into your life? Uh, okay, so I was uh, a young girl in Miami growing up in a bicultural, bilingual household. My mom is from Venezuela and my dad is was born in Brooklyn but was raised in the Catskills. And my grandfather was uh, an MC in one of the great Catskill resorts. It's no longer there. It was called the Laurels Country Club. But 
if you think about Dirty Dancing or any of the Borscht Belt uh, places, you know, during the high time, during the heyday of the Catskills, that's where um, my family was. That's the environment my father grew up in. And so, um, so yeah, I grew up in the middle of two cultures, I would say like, you know, both very talkative and obsessed with food, but uh, one was the Latin culture also growing up in Miami, you know, in the eighties was a huge period of migration for the Cuban Americans. So uh, Miami was turning into a very, and mostly Latin speaking city, uh, Spanish speaking cities, excuse me. And uh, um, it was a huge uh, Latinx community at the time. And um, as it is now, and so I was exposed to, I always say like I'm Venezuelan, but I kind of have a Cuban heart because I was, so many of my friends were Cuban and their families were Cuban. And, um, and the Cuban food is some of my favorite. So I, I was sort of raised, and of course my aunts and uncles who were Venezuelan, I, I was raised in two worlds. There was this Latin world where I spoke Spanish and, um, and that had its own set of cultural rituals and values. And then there was this like Borscht Belt, Miami Beach Jews side. Um, so I lived in those worlds and uh, my father, having grown up around so many of those great entertainers and being of a generation that actually took their kids to the theater and really loved and valued um, performing artists, uh, he loved musicals. And so he was always exposing me to either movie musicals, Broadway musicals in, um, in movies, or just like variety specials of the 70s and 80s that would have these great entertainers on them, great comedians, great singers. So um, like Stephen E.D. Gourmet, and, but then the great comics like Buddy Hackett and Rodney Dangerfield. And so, um, yeah, so I fell in love with theater, I think watching those movie musicals. And uh, my dad would certainly um, take advantage if shows, touring shows came to town. I saw Sandy Duncan and Peter Pan. I think that was the first thing I ever saw, which was extraordinary and magical. And then um, I would come to New York. Um, I found my happy place in a camp called French Woods. Um, that is a performing arts camp that exists to this day where a lot of theater nerds like me gather, theater nerds and theater enthusiasts, I would say, because even though we all performed there, so many of my dear friends from that time, a lot of them have pursued a career in the performing arts, but a lot of them have become um, you know, agents and managers and producers. And then there's just the whole bunch of them that uh, are doctors and lawyers, but are huge uh, enthusiasts and advocates of the theater. and. Um, so it was a great place to, it was heaven on earth, actually. I, I started going there when I was 11. And I just couldn't believe I could go to a place where all the kids were into theater like me. There wasn't really a theater scene or anybody really passionate about that when I was growing up in Miami. So by 11, I knew I had found my people in, uh, in upstate New York. Well, we're alike in that regard because I went to Usedan summer camp which is on Long Island. Of course, of course I've heard of it. And it was all you know it was heaven on earth there were eight musicals a summer and my first summer I was exposed to anyone can whistle and, and we were doing like 
you know, crazy shows. And in yeah. my there, I was in Edwin Drood and I was in Sugar. I was in of course. <laughs> Lady. Like, yeah, we were just doing cool things that I, I was so happy to understand what the other shows were doing. Rags, like we did so many amazing sort of off the beaten path things. And to this day, I work there and I direct the shows. And so it's a really full circle moment kind of getting to spread that joy. So I know that we're united and with this sort of camp nerddom and <laughs> I get that it's heaven on earth, but I'm wondering if you could also talk about the new world school of the arts. Ah, oh, another saving grace in my life. So I would go to French woods every summer and just live my best life. And just like you, we would work on, you know, all sorts of musicals. And I developed a, you know, Sondheim passion early. And uh, I loved it there. But September would come and I'd be home. And this was pre exactly tears streaming down my face. This would be this is pre, of course, pre cellular phones, pre internet, everything. So the only connection I had to that word world were letters and stamps and long distance calls that cost money on, on one phone line that I shared with my family. So, you know, it was really hard to stay connected to that world. And so um, suddenly, miraculously, it was my junior year in high school, um, they decided to open a performing arts high school in Miami, Florida, called the New World School of the Arts. The provost's name was Richard Klein, and he was from LaGuardia. And it was like, oh my God, you know, the fame school guy is coming down. Oh my God, right? And I really had two separate worlds in the fact that I had my camp friends who were theater people, and I had my home friends who were completely non-theater people. And going to this, you know, this new school, I had to commute an hour every day to go to, but finding a whole other community of people who love to do this and actually were uh, a more diverse group than my Long Island Jewish friends that I, you know, that I loved and worshiped during the summers. Now this was in Miami. So as I was exposed to a lot of different, you know, uh, Latinx performers, black performers, artists, visual artists, like, you know, um, it was such a different world and I was so grateful for it. Uh, also, I discovered very early on who was going to be my person there, my, my bestie. We found each other pretty early because we had already competed at like, you know, middle school state thespian things and clocked each other. And so we held on for dear life the moment we met and are still very close to this day. And that is Tony Award winner, Katie Finneran. <laughs> And so two-time Tony Award winner. Oh so yeah, we met, we started there when we were, I don't know, like 16 years old, 15 years old. And we, no, I think we go back to meeting at 14. There was like a week long summer choral camp at University of Miami where we met and essentially fell in love. You know, you're like, your first best friend is like your first moment of falling in love. And, and Katie was like really my first partner in life. And so we kept in touch occasionally, but then once we got to New World, it was like we were inseparable for the two years we were there. And um, yeah, and are still close to this day. So it was amazing. So this, this school then is how you knew you were serious about, I'm making, I'm going to pursue a career in this. And did you know that you were then going to go through the college audition process and walk me through just that? Yeah, I mean, this is the 
ridiculous part. I knew very early on. I think it like by my first summer at French Wiz by 11, I was like, yeah, I'm doing this. So, (laughs) which, you know, and I was surrounded by a few people, like-minded people like that, who were that uh, focused and that driven. And so it took me a long time Uh, I think as a teacher to realize that people arrive at that a little later, (laughs) right? That people like you and I are like in the minority. I knew very early on, this is what I wanted to do. I was just biding my time until I could get to New York, quite frankly. So when New World opened, it was such a gift because now I could really pour all of my heart into my training during the year while I was getting ready to um, audition for colleges and stuff. Yeah. And so now you know we're going to go out of order just slightly yeah partially because i'm excited and partially just because it helps streamline it but you're 18 years old you find yourself in the european tour of west side story <laughs> and i you know the videos are called obsessed but i am truly obsessed with the seth Rudetsky videos with the two of you at ripley <laughs> studios i think that they are endlessly funny and you mentioned you know in one of them that you're a huge broadway geek and obviously we've already covered that and you say in that interview that you were in that rehearsal room and you could go around and list everyone's credits. And I'm wondering if you could just say sort of that is firsthand experience that can't be taught in school. And it really does have to be learned on the job. And I'm wondering if you agree with that statement and sort of as you reflect back what that experience taught you and how it created a foundation in you. Oh my God. I mean, it was business school, first of all. Um, I got to, you know, the the show rehearsed in East Berlin, like this was the year after the Berlin Wall came down. So it was like a big deal. It was the first time anybody was on that side, what formerly was that side of the wall. Like it was, uh, we stayed in a hotel that was like an old KGB hotel. We were, you know, I was completely isolated and just, you know, alone on an island called West Side Story and living my dreams while also being, you know, extremely homesick. Oh my gosh, disconnected from my parents, all that kind of stuff. But I, I first arrived and yes, you're looking around the room and going, oh my gosh, you know, that's uh, Yamil Borges who played Morales in the movie version of A Chorus Line playing Anita. Oh my gosh, right? Like, uh, these, a lot of these people were in the national tour of West Side Story that I just saw, you know, at the Sunrise Musical Theater, like, you know, two summers ago, oh my God, they were all on that tour, you know, starring Jack Wagner's Tony, but they were all in the ensemble, you know, like all these silly, not silly, I mean, my playbooks were really important to me. And everybody in, everybody that was doing it was somebody that I wanted to model in some way. And so that was huge for me. So I would look around and say, oh my gosh, this person, oh my God, this person was in Jerome Robbins Broadway, right? So I was very excited about being in the room with all of those people. And, um, but immediately, yeah, I would say it really was, I mean, I left college early. I didn't finish the college experience. I thought I was built for four-year conservatory because of my passion for French Woods. I was like, all I wanna do is eat, drink, and sleep this all day for four years. But my path was different and I found that I got an extremely valuable education in learning how to be in the rehearsal room, getting to witness different behaviors in the rehearsal room that I really liked and that I really didn't like. And sometimes behaviors that I really didn't like could be attached to artists whose work I really liked, right? So I got to sort of witness and pick and choose as a human, like, what am I drawn to? What's, you know, 
what is disrupting this rehearsal for good and what is disrupting this rehearsal that is wasting everyone's time, things like that. Uh, that, you know, you can't, I mean, I try to teach that, but you know, the best thing is just being in a room and sort of witnessing all of that happening. Also, um, uh, the, uh, yeah, learning how to do, you know, eight shows a week and figuring out how to build that stamina and seeing who was better at it, you know, than other people or who the partiers were and, and who could really party and do eight shows a week and deciding what, you know, what, what were my physical limits? What could I do as a young person? You know, I was somebody who never necessarily, I, I just don't have like a super party personality, <laughs> but I, you know, but so, and I always just wanted to like, I was very save the gift, save the gift, you know, work out all day, warm up, get ready. Also, because for me, I was a kid and I was geeking out. I knew how incredibly lucky I was to be in the room and that at any moment it could be decided I wasn't worthy of being there, right? So that was huge. The other thing that I call business school is, you know, I entered that company as um, actually the understudy uh, for Maria. Um, also really learning how you can, how you have to learn on the job. I was shocked to find out that like understudies don't rehearse until after the show opens. I was like, wait, what? So I'm like secretly practicing all of my stuff. And I ended up going on opening week unexpectedly. And so that was huge. And also having the experience of when I did go on opening week, that particular rehearsal process was very old school. Not only did they kind of separate the sharks and the jets a little bit, but the principals in the ensemble were like in two different worlds, even though they were all very kind and generous people in the principal roles. I just, we were kind of kept separate. So I feel like I essentially met the actor playing Tony the night we were about to go on together. And that, and of course on stage, his name is Scott Carollo and he, um, he later played a younger brother in ragtime in LA down, down the line, but he was an incredibly generous actor on stage. But yeah, I had no idea that that would be the case. I mean, we were just kind of thrown in together. So all those things happen. That tour went on for years. I only stayed on it for a few months and then came back home and I was already past like when I could have just jumped back into my semester at school. So I started taking, you know, temp jobs and stuff like that. And the next time my replacement left and then the next time they called, I suddenly realized after having spoken to everyone, what people were making, what their value was in the company, somebody who may have had more experience, but who did way less than I did. You know, I ended up going on for Maria a lot, right? So the next time they called, I negotiated my own terms uh, just because I knew I had, that's something you can't teach, you know? I learned that and just by being privy to conversations, I was like, huh, wait, that person is making that and I'm making so much less than that. Yeah. But I feel like I'm, my job responsibilities are so much more. And, and at that time, the privilege of getting a, something so young is you don't have any ego about it. You're like, well, of course I make the least. I, I didn't have any credits before this. However, what is my value to this company? What is my, my contribution worth? So I, I learned a lot. Um, during that time. Yeah. So that, that's what I'll say about it. And I went 
back and forth. Um, I, I went on to play Maria uh, and I went back and forth on that um, tour for a long time until my final one, which ended the year I would have graduated from college. And Alan Johnson, who was the director and heir apparent of that whole West Side Story um, time, uh, the enterprise at the time, he was like the Jerome Robbins heir apparent to it. Uh, he signed an, a diploma for me <laughs> from West Side U, which um, I proudly hold as one of the greatest uh, educational investments in my life. Absolutely. And you were being paid. So I think that's incredible. I, I figured, you know, that's, it's such an invaluable thing to learn on the spot. There's college learning or whatever learning that you do. And then when you get in the room, it really is kind of like being shot out of a cannon. So whomever this podcast reaches, I really try to look at it from an educational standpoint for students or for whomever, just to know, like, when you walk in, it might be a little different than what you're expecting or, or how you're treated in the university setting. Um, and That's so, very, oh, no. <laughs> that is very important to me as an educator, quite frankly. I think those of us who are passionate educators really want to give the information we never got, share the information we never got. So it's something I try to incorporate into every classroom that I have, which is like, who do you want to be in the rehearsal room? Right? What, um, what is your worth? How do you calculate your worth? How do you calibrate how you're going to be able to sustain eight shows a week, at least even if you, even if you get 10% of that information in the classroom, when you're in that room, it's all going to come back and you're going to say, oh, that's what she was talking about. Okay. Yep. Now I know what to do. Absolutely. Um, something I don't want to spend too much time on because they can go watch the videos because they're so funny, but well, I'm just going to drop a little seed of it because it's so funny when you told whomever that you were going to belt the score, like it, you do it differently than everybody else. I don't know what was going on. I think I just must have been so lonely. I don't know. Because I really was sort of keeping to myself thinking, you know, I'm just like the low man on the totem pole here. I was the Marie understudy. My good friend Devin Omjanky was playing Chino. And he was also like one of the youngest people there. And he took an interest in me. And I don't know. He was like, I can't wait to see what you do with the part. And I was like, yeah, well, mine's really different because I built the whole thing. And <laughs> It's just so funny because it's like what I actually did though, like it, it watching you talk about that reminded me and then I'll go back to our topic, I promise. But when I was in high school, we did Candide in school. I wasn't in the production, but a friend of mine was in callbacks for Kunaganda and she was sort of known in the school as like a belter. She can belt everything. And so for callbacks for Candide, she was asked to sing for Kunaganda and she literally belted like, ha, ha, ha. Like, uh, they're like fully like belting out of her chest and everybody in the room was just kind of like, what's going on? Like, how do you physically do that? Like to this day, like high school was over a decade ago. We cannot stop thinking about the enormity of that. <laughs> but I just sort of love also the lying, like you lying about it. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought like, I just thought of the most absurd thing. I, it sounded to me, maybe it was my way of coping with the pressure of like, what are you going to be like? I hope you're as good as the person that you go on for. And I just, I don't know. That was my way of saying like, you're not ready. It's going to be totally different. You yeah. know? In a, in a similar light, you also kind of talk a little bit about the medley that you created for the Jerome Robbins Broadway edition. And while that's also really funny, I actually don't laugh when I watch you do it because I kind of think it's amazing. And it's so sort of 
creatively i think that's the level of auditioning that you should be bringing into the room like you put so much thought into this medley that you created and you were thinking of all the minutia of all the ways that you could contribute to the company so i actually don't think it's like that funny i love that paul gemignani was like just sing cornet but like i just think that it's so brilliant and were you always auditioning that way in the city um i tried to but that was an exceptional <laughs> and first of all may i just say Thank you. Thank you for seeing me. Okay? Because I really thought it was brilli a brilliant idea too. And quite frankly, like one thing I, I will always say that I feel like my superpower is my versatility. Okay? That's what I just feel I have to offer in, the, in this theatrical landscape. One of the things I have to offer. And so to me, it was a dream to be able to audition for something where you played a multitude of different roles. And so um, I had a friend from college, his name was Michael Mangano, and I was at the Boston Conservatory with him. And he created this with me. And, um, you know, I just thought it was a brilliant idea. We just took pieces because we sat there and broke down what um, Debbie Shapiro Gravitt did in Jerome Robbins, like her entire track. And we said, how can we, without doing all of her parts, um, show take you on a journey that shows I can do everything that she can do? So, um, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was pretty fun. I guess at the time when you you know you go, I didn't have an agent. Like on an open call situation, I'm sure Paul Gemignani was like, uh, wow, like you know I don't really have time for this to go on a journey. I just want to know if you can belt and that's it or soprano. But, um, you know, the story is like, I finished and um, yeah, the, you can look it up on Seth's Obsessed, but I do everything from, you know, I wanted to be um, in Jerome Robbins Broadway. I wanted to sing Mr. Monotony. I wanted to be Rosalia. I wanted to be Mazeppa. Um, I think there's more in there, but anyway, that was the idea. And so I put this whole compilation together. And when I finished, Oh, I want to be the somewhere girl in the somewhere ballet. I think that's how it starts. That starts. <laughs> and it goes into America and then it goes into Gypsy. It does all this stuff. So I finished and they just were like, blink, 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 blink. Like, and finally somebody out of the awkwardness said, well, we're speechless. And I really could not, you know, I could not tell that that was a good thing. Um, but he said, I, you know, the big joke and Seth loves the way I say this, you know, is the tone that Paul Gimignani had was just like, against my better judgment, I'm going to call you back. Um, so anyway, but he did. And, uh, I ended up getting really far in those Jerome Robbins auditions, but, uh, but it was not to be. The whole thing. Just the whole way that you. So if you, listeners, just go and do it. I don't want to take too much because I you have to watch how funny this whole thing <laughs> The dance call, how long you last, et cetera, et cetera. But yes. actually, Katie Finneran's a big piece of that story. I don't know if I say that, but like when every time I make a call to tell my friend, you know, I, I'm not coming, uh, that's Katie Finneran on the other line, just P.S. Anyway. Oh, see, this is what the podcast was born for, just furthering the mission of Seth's Obsessed videos. But um, 
you mentioned before sort of staying in touch with camp friends and there was really only other ways to stay connected. And I came of an age where, you know, we had AIM or we had AOL, Instant Messenger and things, and you could communicate that way. But the other thing that sort of kept me alive with camp was cast recordings. And so I wanted to just talk about your impact sort of on all of us at theater camp with Songs for New World, obviously, like that album, that vocal selection book. If you could sit at the piano and accompany somebody on I'm Not Afraid of Anything, or God forbid you could do... um, King of the World or... Yes. (laughs) You could sit down and do that on the Steinway at camp, you were golden. So like that, just sort of passing the, you know, passing the stories on, like, that's a huge impact on all of us growing up at, at theater camp. So I would be remiss not to speak about Songs for New World. And so I'd love to kind of know the origin story of your iconic material. Was there a David in I'm Not Afraid of Anything? And and could you speak a little bit about the collaboration between both you and Jason Robert Brown and Daisy Prince, as well as your fellow actors? Okay, well, Songs for New World was um, a combination of standalone songs that Jason had that then he, which then he started writing with this theme of being on the brink of something new, the new world, right? So, and adding historical figures and all of that. Um, I was in New York and because of these, I had left school to go do West Side Story and I would leave the contract to come back home and audition for different things. And then I'd go back out and do a West Side Story for a little while, come back. And during that time I was in New York and when my peers would have been in college, but Jason Robert Brown also left Berkeley like around the same time and he was in New York and he was making his way by playing at piano bars and music directing people's club acts in New York City. So we found each other in New York and we of course had grown up together um, at camp. Um, We weren't like super close or besties or anything, but we were, you know what it is when you grow up with the same group of kids at camp and the same group of artists. And um, we had a group, maybe they have something at used Dan called uh, Cabaret Troupe. That um, and that at the time, I mean, now it's very slick and fancy at French Woods, but at the time, it was just a group that uh, they created so that we could sing. We could just do amazing vocal arrangements. We had a fantastic music director, vocal arranger um, named Bruce Sachs, who is now a very successful pediatrician on the Upper East Side. But he was putting himself through med school. He had a great ear for harmony. He had a great ear for arranging, and so um, he would put together these shows and they were always like contemporary Broadway, right? Like that's the stuff you really want to do. So there was always Sondheim and Stephen Schwartz and Malpy and Shire and Maury Yeston and these people that were, you know, more of the groundbreakers during our time. Um, So anyway, uh, we were both in New York and we would just catch each other at events. Like he'd be, I'd go to see somebody's club act. He'd be the musical director. He'd go, he was at Williamstown to accompany someone and I happen to be singing in the cabaret there. So there was always like a cool, we're both here, we're doing this, um, an affirmation and respect for one another. And then he had already been discovered by Daisy Prince and was collaborating, was collaborating already with Billy Porter and Daisy Prince. He discovered Billy singing at Don't Tell Mamas. Um, and so he started writing some stuff for Billy um, Daisy saw them at the club, said, I want to start developing this as a piece. 
and um, she she brought him into her dad's world, into the great Hell Prince's world, and and so he started getting connected to people who, to me, were legends: Liz Calloway, Jim Walton, Merrily We Roll Along. Right? Like, come on, right? So, um, so I think the the story goes that he was preparing. I'd give it all for you to sing at a benefit with Liz Calloway and that I guess Daisy had set up or something. And uh, she had to cancel and he was in a pinch and said, I was, you know, I need someone. I, you know, I hear her voice on this and, you know, I thought, well, who's the poor man's Liz Calloway. <laughs> and the reason he said that is because we had done baby at French woods and we were all obsessed. That was our, you know, we had, we had baby, we had nine, we had um, um, closer than ever, okay? I think these are really the seeds of, of Songs for a New World, certainly the structure of closer than ever, right? But, but we were all obsessed with, um, with baby and I, in particular, with Liz Calloway's instrument. And so that's all I wanted to sound like. That's just, you know, she was a huge inspiration to me vocally because I couldn't believe you could take like all parts of your voice and make them into this seamless thing. So um, I always say like she was one of my great teachers before I had a teacher or whatever. So um, anyway, I came over and pretty much sight read, I'd give it all for you. We sang it together and we had that moment, like I always say like in, in rom-coms when like the best friends are just kind of like goofing around and then they have that moment like zzz, where they look at each other and like the chemistry is there. And I feel like artistically, we, we fell in love in that moment, you know, Jason and I. It was just like, he just started, he was like, uh, you have to sing my music. And I was like, um, I have to sing your music. And I do think it has to do with the fact that our influences were so similar. We grew up hearing, not only, you know, hearing the same shows, appreciating the same things, but, um, this music director, Bruce Sachs, was a huge influence on us in, in our harmonic ears. Like even the way Jason arranged, I felt like, oh yeah, I've been singing these kinds of arrangements. Like I, I get why this is so special. So that's how it started. And I took that thing home, everything he had ever written in a, you know, lead up to that point for Songs for a New World. And I just memorized that whole thing because they were starting to do readings to develop it. And, and once I got introduced to Daisy, it was all about, at that point they were bringing stars in to maybe do the, the woman two role. And I thought, I'm just clinging onto this by my fingernails, you know, like there's no reason not to, you know, replace me with somebody famous. So I just learned that thing down. And, um, and luckily, you know, I stayed with it the whole time. And, and, you know, it was a huge introduction for me into the Broadway theater scene. And I tell my campers, if, you know, whenever I visit French Woods, I'm like, you know, they're like, how do you get your break? I'm like, look to your left and look to your right, friends, because that's, how it, that's who it was for me. Completely. And I mean, I had to run to Colony Music to buy the CD because I couldn't get it anywhere else. You know what I mean? I had to buy the CD there. It was like not even at one point I, I tried like my local Barnes and Noble or something and I had to go to Colony, rest in peace. And yes, it's amazing. Right there on the floor, it's like ripped and torn because I played it so much. But I love stories like that. And, um, you know, speaking of other iconic things, just of Sondheim's, you originated Celeste at second stage, yes. the New York premiere after the original production in 1955. And so 
just if you wanted to speak about what was it like working on that time capsule of a musical it's such an early product of the 50s and one of sometimes earliest things well first of all there was no original production in 1955 I mean, it was sort of um, I guess though yeah like they were doing it in readings and they were trying to get it done and um, you know the story of course that there was a producer first of all the book was written by the Epstein brothers who are the guys who wrote Casablanca and so uh, and they were collaborating with Stephen Sondheim, a new, young, up-and-coming kid. And there was a producer who really believed in Stephen and said, oh my gosh, like, wow, I love this music. I love the way you write. I'm behind you, kid. Let's produce it. And he died. And so, you know, it's not like the Jonathan Larson story where the composer dies and the producers are behind, <laughs> you know, putting the movement forward. Like this was the only guy with money and power who was invested in Stephen Sondheim and nobody else was interested. So that thing died on the vine pretty quickly. And then in the 70s, when uh, Steve was having all of his success with Hal Prince and there was talks about putting it up again. And, you know, that just those just never came to fruition. So ultimately it was unearthed and a small theater company in, in, I want to say London, but it may have been outside. It was in England, a British theater company decided to, um, I think to a small production. And then for Sondheim's 70th birthday, they said, you know what, we're actually going to mount this show that you wrote when you were 24 years old and we're going to make, you know, it's New York debut here. So that was tremendous. I mean, to originate a role in a Sondheim show, you know, that's like my dream. That, that was a dream come true. And um, I loved that show. I loved my role. Um, I always say she was like, she's like the Jewish cousin of Daniela. You know, she's bossy. She's kind of the older sister, older figure, the mother hen, even though she was the same age, it was all about these guys in their 20s. And I just happened to be the married guy's wife. But she's a mother hen to all. And um, and the music was great fun. And it was an, you know, an unbelievable cast. Chris Fitzgerald and Lauren Ward and Rachel Yulin and Natasha Diaz and Michael Benjamin Washington and Joey Sorge, Jim Stanek. Andy Carl was a standby. You know, it was a really, really good group of people. Um, but we... Uh, we were losing our minds, you know, we're like, oh my God, you know, we're working with Sondheim. It was super exciting. Wow. Well, I mean, other exciting things you've done. I mean, as an actor, you've also been in the plays, The Rose Tattoo, The Nance, The Ritz on Broadway. And I think there's this stigma that musical theater actors can't do straight plays. And as an actor who moves so seamlessly between both, I'm wondering how you find, work with me on this question, how you sort of find that you're training maybe as a singer informs your work as an actor and vice versa. Okay, good. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I consider myself first and foremost, a singing actor. You know, I'm an actor regardless, but I'm an actor plus because I can do it on pitch with rhythm. Right. Um, and I can live in the form that's been created for my acting in music, or I can live without that preconceived form. Right. Um, so that's just a passion, you know, the storytelling has always been the big passion of mine. I think wanting, telling stories in music to me is like, you know, the ultimate chocolate fudge sundae. Like, why wouldn't you want to do it this way? But yes, I definitely came across that stigma. And New World School of the Arts, uh, which was a new art school, had incredible acting teachers, but they did not have like a music theater program. I think they do now. So um, 
at the time, that's just what it was. It was just theater is theater and acting is acting. And if you also sing, because it was a music vocal program that was separate. But if you also sing, you know, and I was part of a lot of that, like, oh, maybe we can work on this. I'd like to work on XYZ material. Can I bring in the opening of Sunday in the Park with George and work on that for my piece, <laughs> right? So, um, but the, 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 the performers that spoke to me the most were the singing actors, Patti LuPone, Bernadette Peters, right? Um, I just felt like the storytelling, uh, you know, the storytelling was the magic to me. But then you have to add, there's so many beautiful components of what we do, right? The showmanship of Ben Vereen. I mean, that's a huge contribution. The, the seamless vocals of Liz Calloway, you know, the versatility of Rita Moreno, that, like all of these different things that um, I loved and admired, but sorry, I'm getting off track. As far as, um, as, far as doing plays, yeah, I just, I like to think of it that way. Um, everything is a story. Every story, you know, every character in a story is, is on a mission. They have a, a, an action to play. They have something they want to get done. They have obstacles to overcome. So um, I really, I really love, I love doing both. And, um, and I would just like to tell anyone who is listening, who loves doing both, that there just is no such thing. I actually, Quite frankly, I'm not crazy about the musical theater performer moniker. I don't know what that is, right? Or when people say, oh, you know, musical theater people. To me, it sounds like circus animals, right? I, I just, I don't like that. I think uh, there are those of us who may, you know, make our bread and butter mostly in musicals. But even that's not me, even though that's the majority of where I do my work, it's also because that's the, the craft that really sings to me, literally sings. It's, I, I equate it to Shakespeare. If you're, an, if you're a Shakespearean actor, you're a singing actor. You can, you know, okay. And by the way, yeah, you're saying 1000%. I really appreciate that this podcast is about process because too often we are, like you mentioned before, you know, we're always called upon that result. Like what's the bright, shiny thing that you have to offer? And, and I'll offer that there's process in rehearsal and there's process in, in the journey of a character in a play. So I don't know if that answered your question, but. It does, and, and you know, just bouncing off of that, thank you for saying that. And speaking of sort of process, I know it always changes. It depends on the project, it, it depends on whatever, but is there an ideal circumstance for you as you navigate the rehearsal room? Let's say while you're on book, maybe in a musical, how quickly you're wanting to put those pages down. What is your sort of, I'm in the rehearsal, this is my step A, B, and C, where I like to be? Well, I get a lot out of the room, the collaboration, and the people in the room. So I just find that a lot of my ideas so much, I do a lot of research um, preparing to go in, but I don't, I get so much information on my feet. Um, Nathan Lane, for example, he goes into rehearsal off book. And we're talking like in a new play. That means he's memorized the play, knowing that a third of it is going to change daily. It's going to be cut and, you know, and uh, new things added. And 
I just think that's like Olympian, what he's able to do. And I often think, oh, is this the play where I'm going <laughs> to try that? With new work, I just find it so hard for me to do it. With something else, like I, a few years ago, I played the beggar woman in Sweeney Todd. So that was something that I was like, okay, I can learn everything. I can come in entirely off book and know that then I can, you know, grow from there and learn on my feet. But so much of my passion also comes from being in new projects and original projects and helping writers develop the voice of the characters. And um, those questions and impulses really occur to me in the room on my feet opposite other people. Um, but I would say if you were looking like any systematic thing I do, I always do a lot of research in the world of the play, the world of who this woman or person or entity, whatever is in this time period, what they may have been up against. Um, what are the similarities I have with this character? What are the obvious differences I have with this character? Um, what can I leave to the imagination? What can I call upon uh, personal experience with? Uh, but I just, um, you know, I really, the rehearsal process part is really important to me. So I actually am kind of a serious person in the room, like as much as I love, you know, people making jokes and stuff like, I get impatient if it goes on too long because I'm like, no, 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 this is my time. This is my sacred space. Everybody, come on. Everybody, come on back. Um, even though I love the spirit of it and I love, I don't know, in school, I'm like such a side talker and like, <laughs> you know, backstage, I can get all busy. And But in the rehearsal room, it's sacred ground for me. So I don't like suffer. I don't suffer that nonsense gladly. I'm the same way. I, I completely agree. There's something sacred about it to me. It's my sort of spiritual haven. But, you know, you kind of just answered this question. But my next question was just sort of saying when you're going into dramaturgical work based off of a real person, for example, Lucille Frank in Parade or uh, Gloria Fajardo in On Your Feet, yeah. you know, you do all that outside work. And then is it in the rehearsal room or maybe in performance or, or both that the work starts to just kind of get left aside and you trust the impulse of the moment? Yes, I think you do all the rehearsal, all the research so that you know the world of the play, right? There's like, I'm a firm believer that you have to know rules before you break rules, right? So you can't just be like, I'm a rule breaker. And I'm just going to, you know, but I don't really know what they are. So I'm just going to do my own thing here. I think that you have a, you're in terrible danger of being incredibly general and uh, boring uh, when you do that. I think you have to, so I, I really, yes, I do my research. I learn everything I can about that person's personal experience. But ultimately, I am, I am doing a fictionalized version of this. I am doing this, I am playing Lucille to David Pitu's Leo Frank, not the real Leo Frank, right? So whatever he is giving me is what I'm responding to. Um, also, it can be like one thing, in Parade in particular, I was able to meet with Judith Dolan and she showed me the actual costumes. I, the costumes had already been created because I was doing the national tour. And oh my goodness, the storytelling that she does about Lucille's journey just in those costumes told me so much, fed me so much. So it can even be a thing like that, 
where all of it, which is why when you're in rehearsal, you know, if you wear a skirt in the show, it's important to wear a skirt in rehearsal. You stand differently in a skirt. It's important to be in heels in rehearsal if this character wears heels or if they're barefoot. You know, you definitely need a sense of how that person carries their body. So it can be one thing or another, but um, that will, so that informs me and that doesn't, that's something that has nothing to do with the original Lucille Frank. It's just me at this time going, wow, look at the magical storytelling that Judith Dolan is doing. How can I, you know, collaborate with this? And I want to say to a lot of students out there too, like, you don't get that when you're young, like how special the, how beautifully the story is being told and how well you're being framed by costume designers and lighting designers, but they have come to be, uh, oh, and orchestrators um, that stuff is hugely important and hugely contributes to the performance. I, I actually speak so much about that. My students are probably so bored this morning. I'm a teacher <laughs> class on, we we were speaking about soft power this morning, the new Janine Tesori and David Henry Huang and musical and, and just sort of, I think Janine is such a brilliant composer and then all of her orchestrators beautifully enhance everything and sort of how her music matches the storytelling aspect and how you can use all of the tools as part of the collaboration. And so I completely agree that, you know, when you're younger, you're being thrown into a costume that we found as a rental and get in this and it fits great. And <laughs> lights, like we turn the lights on and we're good to go. But there is this level of artistry that when you reach a certain caliber, it all is functioning together so beautifully. Um, That's how we do it. Exactly. But so speaking of that collaboration, I wanted to just go back for a second. I mean, just this past season, you stood by for Marissa Tomei as Serafina in The Rose Tattoo. Yes. And I know that you also uh, stood by for Rosie Perez in The Ritz. Mm -hmm. And uh, I jokingly said to you, I've heard from an incredibly reliable source that you are an especially impressive and rigorous actor in the rehearsal room. And I want to talk about sort of the skills that are required to stand by for a prominent role on Broadway and how you learn to manage the responsibility. Wow. Um, I will say it is, yeah, it's, it, there's nothing like it. Like understudying is a, is a, or standing by is a completely different animal. I'm very grateful that I've had the opportunity to do it at the beginning of my career as Maria, like understudy and in the ensemble. And then later on standby for some, for movie stars. And uh, I, because it gives me a perspective towards my understudies that I really, um, I appreciate, you know, um, I appreciate what the work is. Um, it's a totally different animal because, and it also depends on where you are in your career. Um, as far as you know that you are preparing, you know, in some cases, I think with a, when you have a, you know, above the title celebrated, you know, Academy Award nominated name or whatever, winning name, um, you know you can never step in and try to recreate that performance. That's not something that actually anyone's interested in, right? If you come to see Marissa Tomei, you wanna to see Marissa Tomei. So the question becomes, how do you um, have ownership of what your particular um, version of this role is going to be? And I think it's a fine line because you have to have great respect for the people who are out there every night, right? You can't just say, it's like I say the rules, you have to know the rules to break the rules. You can't just be like, mine's going to be totally different and I'm going to walk wherever I want. And I, right. You have lighting that's been designed on blocking. You have actors that not only 
um, are used to it the same way every night, but like their muscle memory is engaged in a certain way every night. And even though they're open and want to be spontaneous for you, you do have to respect the machine. Because eight shows a week, ultimately, you know, we, we hope it's a machine that is alive and has, I don't know, this is an oxymoron, has blood and guts, but still it does. If a cheetah is running across, you know, the plains, it runs in a certain way. Their body is built like a machine. And so you can't just ask it to stop and start in different ways. So I think having respect for the process and for the whole company, um, but also, um, being brave enough to uh, investigate the role from your own point of view. I mean, I think that's what's so magical about theater, right? You can go see one person play it, you can see another person play it, and there are different things that leap off the page to different actors. And so um, uh, that's, been, that's been my experience of it. And um, yeah, again, anybody being an understand, you also have to just know where you fall in line in the company because there will be certain roles. Maybe you're standing by for, you know, something that is a supporting role, but not necessarily, you know, a signature performance that everybody knows is, you know, um, and they want you to do it exactly the way it's done. And you must have great respect for that. And also trust that you are a snowflake. Everyone is a different warm-blooded human being and your own humanity will shine through nonetheless totally yeah that's a lesson i've learned too as an actor i've understood it for telly leung and other great sort of like artists and it's so invaluable to to get that experience under your belt and to have people he was so generous with me and so would call me and give me pronunciation things you were doing a shakespeare play together and just sort of call me and say okay we're going to pronounce the latin this way we talked about it today in rehearsal you weren't in the room for that so here you go and just like that's who i learned from sort of growing up in the theater and it's beautiful so i i love that that's your journey as well yeah i think look if you are someone who really believed the, pl the plays the thing right in the end like you really just want the show to be good Right. Of course, everyone has egos, everyone. But but ultimately, like, why are you going to are you going to let the show be bad because you want to sabotage someone? So they're not as good as like, what is that? <laughs> right. Ultimately, OK, I just learned this thing that's really cool. Cool. It's going to make the show even better. So if I'm not here, the person, the person standing in these shoes needs to know that. Totally. Well, speaking of standing in shoes firmly on stage eight times a week. Yes. I considering your roots and considering everything else regarding on your feet i wanted to just sort of talk about what the impact was of singing your sort of signature song me tiara eight times a week on a broadway stage and maybe what else attracted you to the piece oh well that song first of all was the number one reason to do that play um believe it or not i used to do a whole section in my club act about growing up in a bicultural household and how my parents were very supportive of my being in uh, wanting to pursue a career on Broadway and in musical theater. I said, but I think they had very different dreams or fantasies about what that career would look like. And uh, I would do my father's version, which would be Miss Marmelstein, literally. <laughs> So I would do like Streisand's Miss Marmelstein from I Can Get It For You Wholesale. And then I would say, meanwhile, on the other side of the bed, my mother was picturing this. And we used to break into Mi Tierra, Gloria Estefan's Mi Tierra. I've literally been singing that song for years. So 
I mean, that was just like an unbelievable piece of serendipity. I, uh, that song resonates with anybody who is, certainly who's an immigrant, but who comes from an immigrant family, basically the idea of it. And for people who are citizens of the U.S., you can just imagine if you were ripped away from your country and started to live your whole life somewhere else in Europe and New Zealand, wherever you were, there would be certain things that would always tug at your heart about your own country. And that's what the song is about. It's about certain, um, certain drum beats, certain stories, certain things that just pull you and the beautiful poetry of that song, Mi Tierra, which is you know, the, the technical translation is my homeland, but the literal translation is my earth, the dirt, my earth, right? So, and, and it's personified in this song, like my, my earth, my land, um, it pulls at me, it hurts me, it sighs when I'm gone, all right? So these are really powerful images, right? It, it, it hurts you, it hits you, right in the middle of your soul when you're not when you're not there um it pushes you from your it pushes you in your roots and in your quality and its size when you're away sorry that was me just like translating on the spot but um very powerful stuff and so i've always loved the song plus it's such a fantastic um Musically, it's fantastic. And in the video in the 80s, Gloria would be there with like a flower behind her ear, you know, singing with this glamorous band and sort of emulating this, this Havana club scene. So this is an image that I loved and admired for decades. And then suddenly, you know, I was asked to step into those shoes. So that was, that was a dream. To tell you the truth, I was like, you know, I was like, I didn't think I was like old enough to play a grown person's mother, of course. That's another thing I say in my, we say my club act, I'm like, and I play Gloria Stefan's mother. Um, however, all they had to tell me was, there's a flashback and she sings Mi Tierra, and I was like, I'm in. Yeah. Well, I miss seeing you in the alley by the Marriott Marquis. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, if that isn't a rite of passage, I used to stay at the Marriott as a kid and visit, um, right, visiting and seeing Broadway shows. So that it was in that particular hallway was, or breezeway, breeze. as it's called. Exactly. And just uh, also, you know, a rite of passage for me in college when I was a freshman at Marymount Manhattan, riding the elevators up and down every day. There used to be an amazing yes. bookstore over there that's gone, that had every vocal selection book and CD you could imagine. And yes. also like going to the bathroom there when you're on your way in the middle of Times Square and you have an audition or something and just, that's my place, so I miss it. I really do Correct. miss it. And to take it to take it one step further, um, before phones, that's where all the actors you'd go like on an open call, and then you'd go to the bathroom because you know you could, you know, nice clean bathroom. But they had a whole bank of phones on like the eighth floor lobby level, and that's where you would go to call your agent, to call your voice teacher, to call make your calls while you were waiting, or just hang out and read a book you know, away from everybody while you were waiting to go to your audition. Oh my God. It's a sanctuary from way back. Oh my gosh, it affects us all. But um, obviously, and now, thank you so much, we're done. We're not gonna talk about In the Heights. Um, we would sort of be remiss <laughs> not to speak about In the Heights. And so, you know, I'm sure you're exhausted from speaking about it, but just if you wanted to briefly explain 
how you came to be involved with that piece, maybe an early audition or the development process. Of course not. And I, I, I'm, I'm never exhausted talking about it. It was a great, thrilling time of my life. And, and again, getting to originate a role on Broadway. I mean, that that's like the stuff I came here to do. And so um, it was an incredible experience, pretty much start to finish. I was involved. I was, I had a one-year-old baby. I was home, not working, just sort of like hanging out with vegetable puree in my hair. And um, yeah, and not working at all. And um, I got a call from a friend that said, listen, I just got a call to be part of a reading of a new musical um, that's being done by these guys. And it is so good. And I just found out I got a big, you know, I got an arc on Law and Order or something and I can't do it. But I told them to call you because I thought you would actually be really perfect for it. And, and she's like, and do you know these guys? They do this thing called Freestyle Love Supreme. This is a really talented group of guys. I was like, no, I never heard of them. I don't know who you're talking about. So I was like, okay, great. Thanks for letting me know. And this was the first time they were ever writing something like Daniela in, you know, um, or a salon owner or whatever. So it was one act and it was being, Kevin McCullum was already involved as a producer. It was being developed at Manhattan Theater Club. And, um, uh, yeah, so I went and we had a read through and I remember Tommy Kale, um, you know, greeting us all. We sat around a table and he did say something to the effect of, you know, Lynn's going to sing all the songs. And, uh, you know, for those of you who've never been here before, you're not ready was basically, <laughs> he's like, I don't think you've ever heard anything like this before. Uh, because there are, there were a couple of people who had already worked on it in earlier incarnations. I think Chris Jackson had already just signed on one time before me. Um, uh, certainly Doreen Montalvo, who stuck with the production till the very end. She's the, uh, she was my understudy. She's, she's the Para Siempre singer, um, the Bolero singer uh, in the show. And she, she was in it. And um, Janet DeCall, who was in it from a very early point, for some reason was not involved, like was unavailable for that particular, my first participation in it. So um, I went and I did that and we sat around the table and I think it was when Lynn got to Caribbean, Dominican Republic, I love it. You know, I was like, what is happening? This is the most, this is the freshest thing I have heard in a really long time. This is, this is something special. And so we read around the table and, um, you know, I had thought uh, at the time, you know, it's a, it's an, it's a Washington Heights story. It's a very um, New Yorkian story. And so um, my reference, of course, um, for this character, especially when I thought of this, you know, uh, beauty salon lady, my references were of all the incredible incredibly glamorous Cuban ladies I had grown up with in Miami because my mom only told, took me to Latin hair salons. And, um, and so I remember at the moment thinking, I don't know, the thing is very urban. No one really has like a, a very thick Spanish accent. You know, um, I don't know if this is what they're looking for. This may just not be the right flavor. Uh, but I just thought, this is who I know this person to be. So you know, it'll work or it won't work for them. But 
I have to come to this with the most authentic experience I have of this character. And trust me, I know this lady. So I just jumped in and I think the first mm. thing I did in that room was at least a version of that, Vanessa, I'm thirsty, coño, you know, something like that. It was probably another line before it was that. But the whole table fell out and Lynn was like, that's it, right? So that was really exciting. And after that, he started saying, you know, what else? What else can we do? And who else, you know, uh, who else can she be? But he definitely, he was like, you remind me of my aunt. This is so, in, you know, in the pocket. This is what this is. So after that, we, it was an incredible time. We loved every minute. I mean, can you imagine just hearing Paciente Fe for the first time? Or, you know, that was when I met Alex Lacamoire for the first time. I said, who are these Tommy Kale? Who are these really talented, brilliant guys? What is this music? What's happening? <laughs> Mandy Gonzalez also, it was her first read that time too. So we met, and also I was like, oh my God, there's another like Jewish Latina in the universe. Look, look at her, there she is. So we had a magical time. And then from then on, you would leave your In the Heights rehearsal experience and cross your fingers that the producers wanted to take it to the next level. And that went on for, um, I think 2004 was when I started. So it was like three years, 2007 was when we were on off-Broadway, and then of course we opened in 2008 on Broadway. But, you know, we would get together and do five days, you know, a week, and everyone, you know, we were the first audience for the show, the cast. So we would just sit there and watch When You're Home, or, you know, Bessie and or Lynn sing, you know, anything. And we were amazed, and we were, and it, or it won't be long now, we were so excited by what we were hearing, and and so turned on by each other and the fact that we were all in the room together. And every time we just pulled out a piece of our personal cultural history, it was lauded and celebrated and embraced. It was heaven. It was heaven on a plate. And uh, to the point where all the way through development, Janet coined, oh, and then of course, well, we'll get to Janet in a minute, but uh, Janet coined a phrase. Uh, we must've been off Broadway where she said, this isn't a job. This is a party con pay, which is con meaning with. This is a party con pay. So that became the phrase, like, this is, this is a party you're paid to be at. It was ridiculous. We just, I mean, we worked extremely hard, but we loved it. We were all in and we loved it. You know, we all, I say this all the time, like when I teach too, like, you know, you, re, you always remember your first or like your introduction to things or like how you felt the first like you mentioned Bernadette Peters earlier like I remember my first way in to Bernadette through like that into the woods right I remember my first everything and I was a junior in high school when in the heights won the Tony mm. and a girl for her 16th birthday that I went to high school with took six friends to the Tonys in 2008 wow we were in the second tier mezzanine at Radio City and you guys did 96,000 for the Tony performance yes we literally sat in the audience like this. And the next day... This is a that podcast, was, so you have to say that you're like leaning forward. Forward and off. And we, we um, you know, the next day was a Monday and I grew up in New York State and we had the Regents examinations on Long Island. And I think like my next day was like global history Regents exam. And I was, I, you know, I made a, a bet, I made a deal with my mother that I was going to the Tonys on Sunday night 
uh, not to mention I had I had to leave. I was doing a community theater production of Grand Hotel that I had to leave early to get in the limo to go to the Tonys to see it. Um, so I was super distracted. And my my deal was that the whole day Monday I would study. And then Tuesday, I think, was the exam. And I promised I would work really hard on Monday. And all I did on Monday was listen to the album of and I didn't, I didn't really what a great story I love that story I studied at all I couldn't get over like you said though but I never heard anything and I'm a big you know I love the sound of orchestrations and what the different parts of the music feel like and I had never heard anything like that on a Broadway cast recording just the way you know when you get into your sequence with the sort of like 90 dun, 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 right. dun, how everything sort of it's just like the feel of it and how it shifted and the overlapping of things. Like when Karen steps forward and does that, like if the lottery, like all of it, I just remember feeling so overwhelmed that I just was in awe of all of it. And I, I did well on the regions, do not worry, but that I, I can't imagine sort of living that experience. I mean, talk about, it's like a joy of summer camp. Yes, it was the joy of summer camp. And with all respect to, to the incredible experience that everyone on the Hamilton ride had, I will never, I just would never trade it mm. introducing Lin-Manuel to the world. Totally. And that's what we got to do in Heights. So it was like, just nobody knew. So even by the Tonys, obviously there was a lot of love in our own community for the show. And so we felt very embraced and loved, but to be able to share that with the world, like we already knew it worked and people loved it. And to be able to actually share it, you know, with the wider global uh, audience was awesome. You know, we knew it was good. We knew it was thrilling and we were thrilled to be a part of it. But so we, I think we were very confident about the material we were delivering, about delivering Lynn, but I do remember the joy, the surprise and delight of, you know, the, the screams during each of our entrances and stuff like that, where we thought, oh my gosh, wow, people really love this show. They really love us. You know, it was cool. Oh, yeah. I know you're also a busy theater educator and teacher, and I'm wondering what you find to be the most satisfying part of teaching. And how you set up the space to be in communication with your students the most effectively? Good question. I think the most beautiful thing about being a teacher is the trust that a student has in you. Um, you know, I ask for that trust humbly and I say, we're going to we're going to do an exercise or we're going to, I'm going to take you on a ride here as far as like, and when I'm talking about trust, I'm not talking about like, we don't do trust falls or weird stuff. I'm talking about, I know you love to sing the life I never led the same way Marla Mandel sings it on the recording, right? I'm asking you to trust me to investigate these lyrics and see, you're laughing. Because a student of mine worked on that this morning. Of course she did. Of course. We didn't do Marla's option up. We went down based off of the London recording, which I was really pleased that we were investigating that. Yes, because going up may not have been the best choice for your person. And by the way, higher is not always better, kids. It's really important to know, like, it's just power. It's power. I mean, you know the story of um, Hamilton, of uh, Angelica, 
of Renee, like I think they initially, I think Mandy does the opt up version now to your union. I, I don't know what it is, but I know I'm a big fan of Renee's. I think it's the provide thing and the hope yeah. that you Do you know what Renee's. it is? What the difference is? I think the Renee's is kind of like. Well, I know what the diff I know what Renee's is, but I've only heard Mandy and Karen do the only you know when I've gone to see them, but I can't remember it. But I feel I'm partial to Renee's, like I and those are my girls, Mandy and Karen, and they can sing their faces off, and I love them. But I think there's power and strength in in holding it down the way Renee did. But of course, that was right for Renee, and the others work. You know, I mean, they work beautifully on Mandy and Karen, so. It all depends on on the students. So that's what I mean about the trust of like, let's put that preconceived notion down. Mm. Which, by the way, if I'm any teenagers are listening, like imitating and mimicking is really an important part of your process. Like I applaud that. But then there comes a time, it's the same as I said, research, then you can let go. And now you have to live in what I call the uncomfortable shoes of the character. You have to step up from your very cushy seat in the audience. You don't get to be in the audience anymore. You okay. have to live from this point of view. And when that, when we are in alignment and a student trusts that and they take themselves a place that they never thought possible. And a lot of times it even exceeds my expectations. I'm like, whoa, I thought it would take you to, you know, level five, but you went to level L. You know, like a different alphabet, different thing, different, different scale. How exciting. So that is so thrilling. And the fact that art is art, artists are artists, and I think it always transcends race, gender, and age. Like I can connect. I had to coach uh, a little kid on a monologue um, as part of the Broadway Artists Alliance program. He was nine years old. I, I don't think I'd ever worked with somebody that young. He, it was like a little altacocker, you know? Uh, he got it. He had like a really funny piece. He had a great sense of humor. And within two minutes, I felt like I was talking to a collaborator, not a nine-year-old. And I think that that, and he was really excited by my notes. He was like, oh my God, yeah, that's funny. And I mean, what other field, you know, I, I guess any field that you're passionate about, right? But it just transcends all of those boundaries and that's what's so exciting is when you meet at that happy alchemic place where the art happens there's nothing better and if you're like me which you probably are like I, I always joke with my like bosses like I'm not cut out to this because like students literally get up and they just like sing one note of something or like they're in it and I just like start crying like I can't help myself sometimes because I'm just so moved that like you know, you mentioned Liz Calloway, but like the story goes on or like this continues. And I'm so always moved by that. Or like when somebody comes in and says something like, you know, I was listening to Wonderful Town and I'm like, what? Like they just <laughs> come in and say things like that. Or like, are you talking about the Jennifer Westfeld version or like the original? And I'm like, what? Like just that kind of thing that blows my mind. So I'm very moved by as an educator in that regard as well. Yes, and we know that it comes in, like you said, in many forms, like which wonderful town version, all of them have their value or Liz Calloway's voice or Karen Akers, if you're talking about Grand Hotel, OG Grand Hotel or OG9, like there's, she has a very uh, small range, but an incredible instrument or singing actor Chip Zion. Like, you know what I mean? How are you gonna hold that to 
Titus Burgess and his range. Like it's just, everything is different, right? Everything is different. One is not better than the other, but it comes in many, many different forms. And that's what moves me. I just want to say one last, like I went and saw a diversity showcase at Montclair State University um, last, I guess it was winter. And um, there was a young woman who came out, um, Grace Rivera, I'm gonna give her a shout out. And she, uh, she's a Latina and she came out and they started the intro to Divine Gravity. And I, I still get chills. Like I honestly, there was something about seeing this girl um, and her beautiful dark ringlets and her dark skin and, and stepping into this sh these shoes, that alone was one thing. But then she sang that song, unlike I've ever heard it before, in her own instrument, in her own voice. She was not looking to slam anybody into any walls, right? And yet she had such facility and um, yeah, dexterity and power with the instrument that she had. Her vibrato doesn't sound like anybody's. Her, her, the size of her voice is not comparable to XYZ. It was her own. And I honestly, I shook and cried through the whole performance because I thought, my God, I'm seeing something. I think I know what it is. And yeah. then I, I'm seeing it completely turned on its head. And now it exists as something completely different that is just as exciting and just as magical. And I, I walk away too. I think every year that I teach or whatever I'm doing, I walk away so much smarter as an actor because I'm learning from them. I really do believe that adage of, I learn so much what works, what's effective, what it's, it's, it's a true gift. So I'm so thrilled that we also share that. We do. We do share that. But now my final wrap up question that I ask everyone is if you would please end with a love note to the American theater. So what makes you keep coming back and why does it continue to ignite your soul? Because storytelling is one of our most ancient traditions. It creates empathy, it creates connection. And no matter how many huge production values you have, there's nothing like being in a room filled with people who are all focused on one storyteller or a story unfolding in front of them. And there are so many stories to be told. And moving forward, we want to just keep expanding the lens of the stories that we are hearing. Because the more rich and diverse they are, I think the more we will realize as a people that we're all connected and we're not so different. We have the same blood and guts and hearts and minds. And they're expressed through different cultural values, behaviors, but really we're human beings. And I don't think you feel that more anywhere else than in a live performance of the theater. I'm missing it so much right now. You know, just hearing you kind of say that I get a little misty eyed. I really, really find myself missing it. I would be, you know, teaching a camp during the day and then I would, you know, take the train or drive to the city and, and see some show over the weekend. And I don't care where I'm seeing it downtown, 
Manhattan Theater Club off Broadway and wherever I'm going, I'm I'm missing it so, so very much. And I'm missing the turning out of new cast recordings and new Tony. I'm missing all of it. So this has been such a, a pleasure today in the middle of this time. I'm so honored that you were willing to speak with me. And I thank you so much for graciously sharing your process with everybody. I seriously appreciate that we're talking about process because it's a passion you clearly have. I clearly have it. Um, and on Monday nights, you know, people know that Stars in the House is happening eight to 10 shows a week during uh, all of this time. Um, on Monday nights, I host Andrea Mondays, where I also get to be in conversation with amazing artists like yourself, um, talking about process. Talk, I'm going to have Alex Lacamoire on. I've had Tracy Toms on. I've had Mandy Gonzalez on. A lot of different people talking about just like what, what, what are the inner workings? What's behind the curtain a little bit um, when we're talking about making art? So you might want to tune in because I know that's something that you're into. And um, it's at starsinthehouse.com on Mondays. Well, thank you very much.